like you to take a Bible, let's open it together this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 29. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a copy for you to borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 212 of our copy of the Bible. Page 212 in our copy or 1 Samuel 29 in uh, your copy. And we're going to be continuing now in our study of the life of the great man of God, David. I don't know if I said the name Lyle Alzado, if that would ring a bell with you, but if you're a football fan, it will. Lyle Alzado for 15 years played as a, as a reckless, mean, take-no-prisoners defensive end, mostly for the Oakland Raiders. And uh, he was a great football player, but he was also a tragic example of how so often in our world we just don't get a second chance for making some of the stupid choices that we make. Listen to his story. It came out of Sports Illustrated not too long before he died of a very rare form of brain cancer. He said, and I quote, I started taking anabolic steroids in 1969 and I never stopped. And then I made things worse by using, by using human growth hormone too. I changed steroids whenever I felt my body building a tolerance to what I was taking. I mixed combinations like a chemist. At times in my career, I probably spent twenty to $30,000 a year on these drugs. And sometimes I was so juiced up on them before games that I would actually foam at the mouth on the sideline. In the article, Alzado goes on to say that he believes it was these drugs that caused his brain cancer. And then he says, and I quote, I played 15 years as a defensive end, but look at me now. I wobble when I walk. You have to give me time to answer questions because I have trouble remembering things. I'm married to a beautiful woman, but I can't take her dancing and I can't even take her to dinner. I don't have any hair and I wear a scarf on my head. The other day I drove into a gas station and a guy there started making fun of my scarf. I wanted to get out the car and beat him up, but my wife reminded me that I'm not strong enough anymore. So many people tried to talk me out of what I was doing, and I wouldn't listen. I had my mind set, and look at what it got me. And not too long after that article, he passed away. You know, this world of ours can be a very unforgiving place, can't it? I mean, a lot of times in this world, it's one strike and you're out. And there are no second chances a lot of times. And we understand that. I mean, we live in a town that's famous for no second chances. We understand how this can work. But this is a real problem for a person like me. Uh, I don't know about you, but for a person like me, this brings some real crisis. Because, you see, I'm a person that makes a lot of mistakes. And what that means is I'm a person that needs a lot of second chances. And, and so why, why, you know, you, you want to know why I'm so excited about having a relationship with the God of the universe like I have. It's because when I go to the Bible, what I find is that God in the Bible is the God of the second chance. God in the Bible is the God of forgiveness. God is a God in the Bible who for person after person, when they get themselves in messes, we see God coming in and forgiving them and extracting them from the mess and brushing them off, and setting them back up, and giving them another chance again. I need a God like that, because I'm always in a mess. Now, maybe you're not like I am. And if you don't get in messes like I do as much as I do, then maybe you don't need a God like that. But I do. And I want to show you today that David got himself in an incredible mess, 
And I want us to see how God, in mercy, moved in, extracted him from that mess, dusted him off, and gave him a second chance. Because God is offering to do the same thing for you and me who know Jesus Christ. And there are some principles we want to talk about how to, about how to maximize that in our everyday lives. So we're going to get there, but let's look at David first, okay? A little bit of background. Remember... In 1 Samuel chapter 27, we find out that David, reacting from fear instead of faith, decides to run away to Philistine country because Saul was trying to kill him. So he goes to the Philistines. He presents himself there to Achish, the king of the Philistines. He asks for asylum. And he convinces Achish over the next 16 months that he lives there that he really has become disloyal to Israel and he really is now loyal to Achish and the Philistines. Now that's where he gets himself in trouble. Look with me at chapter 28. We're coming to chapter 29. But look at chapter 28, verse 1. It says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, You must understand, David, that you and your men are going to accompany me and the army as we go to whack some Israelites. I expect you to be right there with me. Now, folks, this is a real mess. This is a real problem. That Achish expects David to go out now and help him kill Israelites. See, when David fled to Achish for asylum... It was never his intent to ever harm or turn on his own people. That was not what was going on here. But all of a sudden, the game is up. Either David's going to have to go with Achish and keep up this ruse of being loyal to him and fight against Israelites and kill them, or he's going to, to, to refuse to go. And if he refuses to go, the Philistines are going to kill him. Now, he's got himself in a mess here. So they march off to war. David's with them. David's men are with them. And I'm sure as David was marching, he was praying and going, okay, now what do I do? How do I get out of this one? Well, I want you to watch God intervene. It's a wonderful thing. Watch this. Chapter 29. Chapter 29. First one, the Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek. They camped there. And it says in verse 3, that it says in verse 2, David and his men were marching with Achish. And it says in verse 3, the commanders, when they realized this, they came and they said to Achish, what about these Hebrews? And Achish replied and said, is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, the king of Israel? David has already been with me for over a year. And from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. There's no reason he shouldn't be here. The Philistine commanders were angry with Achish. And they said, send that man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go into battle with us, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking off our heads? Isn't this the David? What's wrong with you, Achish? Don't you remember? Isn't this the David that they sang about in their dances? Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. Now, you understand what's going on here, right? The Philistine commanders come to Achish and they say, Achish, have you completely lost your mind? Are you absolutely crazy? What is wrong with you bringing David and his men along? Don't you remember? He's the guy that killed Goliath. Remember that? He's the guy who, after he killed Goliath, was a general in Saul's army and kicked our rear ends all over the country. Don't you remember that? 
This is the guy they wrote songs about, for goodness sakes, about how many of us he chopped our heads off. What's wrong with you? Are you nuts? Have you got amnesia? Are you suffering from long-term memory loss? What is your problem? Don't you see what's going to happen here? He said, they say to Achish, they said in the middle of the battle, David's going to turn against us. And, and all of a sudden, we're going to find Saul in front of us and David behind us. We're going to be in a, that old Phil Pincer movement and they're going to murder us. We want him gone. We want him out of here. We don't want him here in the morning. You get rid of him. Do you understand? Verse 6. So Achish called David. And he said to him, David, as surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable when you were living with me, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. I'd love to go out there and whack Israelites with you, David. But from the day you came to me to now, I found no fault in you. However, the rulers don't approve of you. So verse 9, even though I know you've been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God, nevertheless... The other commanders have said, you cannot go with us in the battle. So you got to get up early. And along with your servants that have come with you, you got to leave in the morning as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning and went back to the land of the Philistines. Is this wonderful? What happened? Is this amazing? David walks out with the army in a total mess, seeing no way out. And by the time God gets done, David comes out smelling like a rose. As a matter of fact, Achish even apologizes to him. Says, David, I'm embarrassed. I'm personally very embarrassed that I've got to ask you to leave. I'll make it up to you one day. But I feel, I, please accept my personal apology for asking you to go home. Did God work this out for David or didn't he? Did God give David a second chance or didn't he? You bet he did. It's a wonderful thing that God did for David. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leaves us with a very important question. And I know you took last week off, so you may be a little rusty, but I know you can do this now. What's our question? So what? So what? Right. Lon, we're happy for David. God bless him. That was an exciting thing God did for him. But you know what? In my everyday life, this doesn't make any difference. Oh, yeah, it does. There's some great principles here we need to talk about. You know, when I was growing up, there was one phrase my dad used to always say to me that I've never forgotten. He used to always say to me, son, your greatest enemy in life is going to be your mouth. And you know, over 49 years of living, my dad has proven to be a prophet. He didn't know he was a prophet, but he was a prophet. My dad was absolutely right. My mouth has gotten me in more trouble than the entire rest of my body put together. Like, for example, the time Brenda and I were in Egypt, 1983, and we were getting ready to catch a plane from Cairo to Tel Aviv to go to Israel. And so we were going through security and I had this little carry-on bag and they put you in a little private room for security and the guard was in there. And he says to me, uh, what do you got in the bag? And trying to be funny, I said to him, oh, nothing, just a bomb. <laughs> Not good to do when you're going from Egypt to Israel. Not good. Then there was the time I was with this four-star admiral and his wife. And we were going down. She was going to be the uh, sponsor to commission this new ship. And it was, that's a big deal, you know. And there was going to be a big party and all her relatives were coming in and whatever. And I, so we were down there um, and, uh, and, and, and so her relatives were arriving and I was greeting them along with her. And this uh, lady came in, looked, you know, older looking lady. 
but looked just like Becky. I mean, it could have been a, just a, a ringer for her. And I said, I'm going to impress everybody. And I went up and I stuck out my hand and I said, it is so wonderful to meet Becky's mom. And she said to me, Reverend Solomon, I'm Becky's sister. <laughs> Folks, there is nowhere to go from there, believe me. <laughs> Nothing you can do. Then there was the time that my good friend Gordy Langley and I decided to go visit this open house. And we walk into this open house. The real estate agent was out in front. It was a Sunday afternoon. And she was pulling weeds in the garden. And she said, oh, sure, just go on in. So we went on to this open house. Now, I'm not going to tell you what style of house it was, because some of you might live in this style of house. But Brendan and I had lived in one of these style of houses, and we didn't like it. And so I, we walk in the house, and as soon as we walk in the front door, I know it's this style of house. I didn't know it from the outside, but I recognize it. So I say to my friend Gordy, I said, you know, this is a miserable sort of house to live in. I said, I don't even want to go through the rest of the house. I don't even want to look at it. I said, this, this, I, you could not pay me enough money to live in one of these houses again. It is a, it is a miserable kind of house to live in. My friend and I lived in it for years. We hated it. So let's go. Well, the agent had just walked in behind us and heard part of this. And as we walked out the door to go, she walks up and taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around and she says to me, are you stupid? I said, what? She said, are you completely stupid? I said, um, well, I don't know. <laughs> she said, how could you walk in there and say those kind of things? She said, I have another couple in that house that were right in the downstairs, heard every word you say. Are you completely stupid? Do you know why they call this an open house? Because everybody can just come and wander through. You weren't the only person in this house. You must be completely stupid. Well, I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, well, I didn't know anybody was in there. I don't think they bought the house either. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I'm t I could keep going. We could spend the rest of the morning doing this. Um, I've got lots of them. I'm good at this. You know, um, you say, Lon, doing and saying such incredibly stupid things. How in the world have you ever lasted for 18 years as the pastor of McLean Bible Church? Well, I got a very simple answer for you. Here's my answer. The mercy of God. I'm not lying and I'm not exaggerating. The mercy of God. That is my answer. See, I have a life verse. My life verse is Psalm 116, verse 6. Here's my life verse. God preserveth the simple. That's my life verse. And it's not just my life verse, folks. It is my autobiography. That is my autobiography in four words. God preserveth the simple. Because I get myself into more messes than anybody I know. Financial messes, career messes, family messes, where my mouth gets me in so much trouble. And in the messes where disaster is imminent, where it's no way out that I can see, and when it's nobody's fault but mine. And yet, in His mercy, God has rescued me over and over and dusted me off and given me second chance after second chance, just like He did for David. Hey, look, David got himself in his own mess, didn't he? It was his own spiritual compromise that got him in this mess. He had nobody to blame but himself. And yet, in mercy, God stepped in and extricated David from the mess he put himself into in his mercy. God did not allow David to suffer the full consequences of his actions, but he dusted him off and gave him another chance. 
And the reason that God does that is not because David was anything special or I'm anything special. The reason God does this is because mercy is a part of what God is. Mercy is a basic ingredient to the nature and the character of Almighty God. God delights in showing mercy to people. He loves to show people eternal mercy. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean that every one of us as human beings is in an eternal mess that we can't get ourselves out of. In the sight of a holy God, we are sinners and we are under the judgment of God. And that's why Jesus came, was to give us a second chance in our eternal relationship to Almighty God. But not only does God love to show eternal mercy to people, He loves to show everyday mercy to people in the everyday messes that we get ourselves in. I want to show you a wonderful promise that God makes about His everyday mercy like He showed David, like He's shown me so many times. Would you turn to Psalm 103 with me? Psalm 103. If you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 428. Psalm 103, page 428. And I want you to look at Psalm 103, beginning at verse 8. Look at the wonderful promise God makes here about His everyday mercy to our lives. Psalm 103, verse 8. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. This is just who God is. Now, verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Boy, aren't you glad that verse is in the Bible? He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor does He repay us according to our iniquities and all of the stupid decisions and choices that we make. Verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. Now stop there one second. Would you notice this is not a promise to every human being in the face of the world? This is only a promise to those who fear God, to those who reverence God, to those who worship God, to those who revere God. Today we would say this is a promise only for people who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and are Christians. This is our promise if we're Christians. This is not a promise God makes to the rest of the world. But to those of us who fear Him... He loves us so deeply, verse 13, that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion, shows mercy on those who fear Him, for He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are just dust. Now, this is a marvelous promise that God makes to Christians, that He will not treat us as our sins deserve. He will not repay us according to all the stupid choices we make in life. And I want to spend the little bit of time I have left talking to you about how to maximize this everyday mercy of God in your life. You ever play those little Nintendo games, like the football game, for example, where the little meter goes up and down and you've got to try to kick the football when the meter is at the top if you want to kick it the farthest? I try to play this with my children, and, I, and when it's over, you know, I'm a nervous wreck. I'm like, you know, I'm trying to push it, and my hand-eye coordination, it just isn't what theirs is, and I'm like, and, and I always end up pushing it when it's coming down, and the ball goes, and then they laugh at me, which really makes me mad. And I say, all right, I'm going to take the game away. Is this funny? <laughs> but what I want to talk to you about is how you can take that little red meter of God's mercy in the everyday circumstances of your life and run it to the very top and keep it there so you're on maximum mercy every day. How are you going to do that? i got three principles to tell you that will keep it there. Principle number one, make sure that your messes 
are made in simplicity. You say, Lon, what do you mean by that? Well, listen to the verse again. Psalm 116, God preserveth the simple. It does not say God preserveth the malicious. It says God preserveth the simple. And see, the mess that David got himself in was not one that was motivated by any malicious intent in his heart. He wasn't out to hurt anybody when he fled to be with the Philistines. He wasn't out to damage anybody. Now, it's true he was spiritually compromising, yes. And it's true that he had taken his eyes off the Lord when he did that, yes. And it's true that he had begun trusting his own human effort and wisdom instead of God. Yes, that's all true. I didn't say he didn't do some things that were stupid. But he, there was no intent to harm anybody involved in that. And that's why when he got himself in the mess that he did, God was so willing to quickly step in and help him. Friends, this is important. I have found in my life that God is abundantly willing to show me mercy when I get myself into an honest mess that's caused by honest mistakes. Even if they're stupid mistakes, if they're honest mistakes, man, God is right there to help me. You know what else I found? I have found that when I get myself into messes where malice has been involved, where evil intent has been involved, where there's been some perniciousness of heart involved, I have found in my life that God is much more prone to let me stew in my broth for a while before He gets me out. Remember the verse, God preserveth the simple... And if you want to make sure that little meter stays at the top in terms of God showing you everyday mercy, my first suggestion is make sure your messes are made in simplicity. You say, Lon, how do you do that? Very simple, friends. Never do anything in malice and you don't have anything to worry about. Never do anything with evil intent to harm anybody in your heart and then you don't have a thing to worry about. Okay? That's a simple solution. And as Christians, we shouldn't be doing things for that reason anyway. Number two, remember God's formula for receiving everyday mercy. You say, I don't know God's formula for receiving everyday mercy. Yes, you do. You say, no, I don't. I say, yes, you do. You say, I don't. I say, you do. This isn't going anywhere fast. But when I tell you, you're going to know that I'm right. Listen, Matthew chapter five, the Beatitudes. Listen to this one. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the people who show mercy, for they shall receive mercy. See, you know the formula. Blessed are people who in the everyday situations of life show mercy and second chance opportunities to others. God says, those are the people that I will show mercy to and give them second chance opportunities. It's a direct proportion, folks. And I have found over the years that one of the fastest ways to clog up the pipes of God showing everyday mercy to me is for me to refuse to show everyday mercy to other people. When I refuse, God says, you know, Solomon... I just don't think I'm going to reward what you just did by showing you the kind of everyday mercy that you'd love to have. There's a story I want to tell you now. I've never told it in public. It's about some things that happened here many years ago. I've never told it uh, in any forum. But I think it's enough time has passed I can tell it to you this morning. About eight or nine years ago, back in 1989, we uh, were having some terrible problems here at McLean Bible Church, 1990. Uh, I really thought I was going to get fired. And it wasn't some awful thing that I had done. It was just that we were fighting about what kind of church this was going to be, where this church was going to go, what kind of vision and values we were going to have. And, and um, 
And so it finally led to a big old showdown in February of 1991 where we had a big vote of confidence. But just before that vote, there was a lady in our church, a very prominent lady, who wrote a letter to the Board of Elders. And as part of this letter, she said, and I quote, she said, it is time for Lon to move on. And she went on to say in the letter that your job as the Board of Elders, in my opinion, is to help Lon understand that and kind of help him on his way. Well, we had this big vote of confidence, and I actually thought I was going to lose. Some of you have been here round, round long enough. You remember that vote. I really thought I was going to lose. By God's grace, I won. And right after it was over, we had it down at Langley High School in the auditorium. Right after it was over, I was out in the lobby, and this lady came up to me. Now, I knew about the letter she had written. I knew what she would said. And she came up to me with her husband, and she said, I want you to know that in light of what's happened here tonight, we are leaving McLean Bible Church. We don't want to follow your vision. We don't want to have anything to do with it. She said, but I have a favor to ask first. True, this really happened. She said, I I committed myself to a particular ministry leadership post, and and it had a term to it. And the term runs all the way through May. She said, this is just February. She said, I made that commitment to the Lord, not to the church, but to the Lord. She said, I would really appreciate it if you would allow me to stay and finish out my term. She said, I really don't want to leave half done, that commitment half finished. If you would, if you would let me stay till May and finish it out, I'd really appreciate it. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I said, here's the deal. I'll let you stay till May and do it. But the deal is that you commit to me that there will not be one ounce of poison, negative comment, undercurrent, uh, undermining the ministry of this church come out of your mouth. You make that commitment to me, and I'll let you stay till May. She said, I'll do it. And she did. She was a godly woman. She kept her commitment. She finished it out till May. She thanked me, and then she left. You say, Lon, that was a wonderfully merciful thing that you did. What a, what a wonderful person you are. <laughs> I want to tell you something, friends. I am not a wonderful person. Don't kid yourself. And that is not why I did this. I want to tell you why I did it. I did it for two reasons. Number one, because I remembered Colossians 3.13. Forgive others just as the Lord forgave you. And I figured after everything Jesus Christ had forgiven me in my life, I didn't have a whole lot of platform to stand on not to forgive this woman. But the second and more important reason I did it is because of the principle we're just talking about right here. I figured having just won this thing, that if I stayed at McLean another 10 or 15 years, I was going to need a whole lot more mercy to make it. And I wanted to make sure my meter stayed all the way at the top. And what does it say? Blessed are people who what? Show mercy. They're the people who receive it. I thought, you know, Lord, there is no way I want to put myself in in a position where you ever say to me, Solomon, if you'd have shown that woman mercy, I'd have shown you more mercy, but you didn't, so I'm not. No, no, no. I figured, hey, I'm going to show this woman all the mercy I can because I want God to show me all the mercy He can when I need it. This is God's formula. And many of us need to be reminded of this formula in our everyday lives if we want to know why sometimes we don't seem to be the recipients of God's mercy like some other Christian we know, we need to check out and make sure that we're meeting the requirements of the formula the way they may be meeting it. Principle number three and finally, keep it a God thing. 
Keep it a God thing. You say, Lon, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that so many times as Christians, when we get ourselves in a mess, the way we try to handle it is we just kind of upgrade our human effort. We just kind of go, okay, now I know what I'm going to do to get out of this. I'm going to do this and go here, call this person, do this person. I'm going to write this letter and I'm going to run over here. And I'm going to do this thing over here and I'm going to go over here and do this. Da, 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 da. And when we get through doing all that, guess what? We make it worse. It's nastier than it was when we started. When what we really need to do at those moments when we're in the kind of mess David was in is we need to drop to our knees and we need to confess to God, God, you are my only hope. God, I got myself in this mess. Nobody else got me in this mess. It's my own fault I'm in this mess. But God, what I'm asking you to do is get me out of this mess. And I don't have another plan, God. I don't know how to get out of this mess, God. That's why I'm so glad I got you. Now, God, can you get me out of this mess and make it a God thing? Friends, when we do this, God moves. Listen to what Nehemiah said. Nehemiah chapter 9. He was praying and he was reminding God of all the messes the Israelites had gotten themselves in. And then he says this, wonderful. He says, but whenever the Israelites would humble themselves and cry out to you, you would hear from heaven. And in your great compassion, you would deliver them time after time. What a wonderful verse. Time after time, the Israelites got themselves in a mess. Time after time, they came and cast themselves on God as plan A with no plan B. And time after time, God delivered them. Got them out of the mess. Dusted them off. Gave them a second chance. Nehemiah is saying, Lord, this is what you've done from start to finish with us as your people. And friends, if you belong to Jesus Christ, that's exactly what he wants to do for you. And he will if you'll make it a God thing. I ran into a guy after the service last night who said, Lon, I lost my job. I lost my job because it was my own fault I lost my job. But I got myself worked up and I have spent two weeks, he said, I spent running around like a chicken with the head cut off, looking, interviews, calling everybody I knew, nothing. He said, finally, I decided I should just drop to my knees and say, God, can you get me out the mess I got myself in? He said, Lon, I lie not. The next day, I got a call, and the next day after that, I had a job. And he said, Lon, what are you saying? Are you saying if I'll drop to my knees and make God plan A, that in two days, God will get me out of every mess I'm in? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, if you'll call, drop to your knees and make God plan A and call out to Him, He will, as Nehemiah said, hear you from heaven, and in His great compassion, He will deliver you time after time. He may not do it as quick as you want, or in the way that you want, but He'll do it in the way that he's knows, He knows best. Believe me, He'll do it. Make it a God thing. These are the three principles to keep that little mercy meter at the top. Principle number one, make sure your messes are made in simplicity and not malice. The simplest way to do that, don't ever do anything with evil intent and you don't have to worry about it. Principle number two, remember God's formula for receiving mercy. It's showing mercy to other people in the everyday in, uh, uh, examples of life. And finally, number three, make sure you keep it a God thing. There's great power in dropping to your knees and humbling yourself and crying out to God to help you and you got no other plan. There's great power there. 
Let me simply say in closing that if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a real and personal way, that one of the great advantages of having a personal connectedness with Jesus Christ is that you've got a God like this that you can turn to when you're in a mess. You know, I think of Elton John's song about uh, Marilyn Monroe. You know the song. It seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind, never knowing who to turn to when the rain blew in. And the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that when the rain blows in and you're in a mess, you got somebody to turn to. Not just anybody, but the God of the universe who's got the power and who loves you enough that He can do something about it. This is not just about going to heaven and having eternal life. This is about having a partner to go through life with that when you step into quicksand, He can pull you out. And so if you don't have that partner for your life, frankly, friends, you need Him. We all do. And you can have Him simply by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you'll think about that. And if you're here and you're a Christian, what a wonderful thing to have a partner like this for life, right? Let's pray together. Father, thanks for uh, reminding us today that you are the God of the second chance, the third chance, the 50th chance. And thank you, Lord, for reminding us that you are interested in our lives and you will intervene to help us if we'll just give you the chance. Thank you for these three principles that teach us how to keep your everyday mercy at the max in our life. And I pray that you'd help us take these three principles, help us work them into our life, and may they change the very way we live, because we had contact with your eternal word this morning. We commit ourselves to you. Change our lives because we were here today, I pray, Father. And for people here today who are in messes, and I'm sure there are a bunch of us here like that, use what we've talked about to give us the strategy we need to bring the mercy of God to bear on those messes. God, cause us to drop to our knees today and stop trying to slug it out, work it out, figure it out, connive it out, manipulate it out, and help us just to pray it out, depending on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.